Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our bonus guest is a neuroscientist and pioneer in the field of neuroleadership. She trained at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research and is an ex-McKinsey consultant. She delivers brain-based leadership programs to Fortune 500 executives and organizations around the globe to transform how they think, innovate, and navigate change. Her book, The Leading Brain, Neuroscience Hacks to Work Smarter, Better, and Happier, has been translated into several languages and received numerous awards and was the focus of episode 86 of the Innovation Show. Friederica Fabricius, welcome to the show. Hi, hi. I wanted to open today's episode by saying that I am very familiar with your work, your book, and your writing and keynotes, and you are an extremely positive person, and science is the foundation of everything you do. I invited you on the show today as a neuroscientist because as a neuroscientist, you are deeply concerned about the way society is handling the COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. The world is in fear. Everybody is in fear. There's a massive fear around. And we know that when people are in fear, their prefrontal cortex for rational thinking doesn't work well anymore. So what we have at the moment is that people can't think straight anymore. And that's very dangerous. And you know what happens when we're in fear? Well, our prefrontal cortex shuts down and we release cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone that literally makes our brains shrink. The problem is that our decision-making ability is on the decline when we have fear. We cannot make the best possible decisions. And I think what we need at the moment is to make good decisions, right? And instead, I feel that we have a lot of biases that influence our decisions. Last time we spoke, we talked about how fear literally shrinks the brain. And I thought a great example that I often give when I'm working with clients is that when a child is born into a fearful environment, their brain literally is smaller than a child that's born into a more fruitful, content, happy environment. And therefore, the child has less of a chance to have academic prowess. And I thought that sharing that would give everyone an example of how this is scientific fact. Yeah, and you know what also happens is that the amygdala, which processes negative emotions, is the only thing that grows. So the parts of the brain that are good for decision-making and empathy and collaboration, they get smaller and, and the ones for learning. And the part of the brain that processes negative information gets bigger. So the more stressed you are, the more you pay attention to possible threats and to negative information. And it's a vicious cycle. It's so important for organizations as well. So I'd love our listeners to listen to today's show. Yes, looking at COVID pandemic and how we're reacting to that and how we need to react for the future, but also for transformation and change and disruption and innovation because they're so tightly linked. And you talk about the psychological mechanisms that are impacted by fear. And you talk about several of them that I'd love to share. And the first one you talk about is hyperbolic discounting. Yeah, you know, hyperbolic discounting is the fact that we tend to pay attention to things that are immediate, such as a virus attacking you today or any problem you have today. And we tend to underestimate more long-term, more complex challenges, such as climate change or the impact of smoking or the impact of sitting. You know, 
18 million people die each year in the world by cardiovascular diseases. And many of them could be prevented by eating less sugar, by moving more, but we don't do that, right? Because the moment, let's say I eat some chocolate right now, it only gives me pleasure. I don't think about the long-term consequences. If I just sit around all day, that might be comfortable, but I don't think about the fact that this might decrease my lifespan by a few years. So we are wired to pay attention to more short-term challenges and When I look at COVID-19, I see that the media are full of pictures, you know, of dead people and dead bodies and, and, you know, testing and statistics. We focus so much on the virus and we lose sight of any other potential threats to humanity that we're facing at the moment. So we look at the short-term impact of the virus attacking us, but we lose sight of the more complex and more long-term impact of our measures. And we underestimate future threats. And I mean, this is important in business as well. You need to understand if you're a company producing cameras, you should understand that it might be a threat when people are buying more and more cell phones. Instead of thinking about how to produce a better camera, you should be thinking about maybe engaging a completely different path. In situations like we're in today, I'm reminded of a brilliant quote by Bertrand Russell, who said, collective fear stimulates herd instinct and tends to produce ferocity towards those who are not regarded as members of the herd. And confirmation bias is extremely prevalent today. This quote speaks from my heart. What I'm thinking is there's only one opinion out there at the moment that is acceptable. And that is the one that, you know, lockdown save lives. We have these mantras of stay at home and um, flatten the curve. And this leads to the fact that people don't even ask uncomfortable questions anymore. So we just accept this as a truth. But when you look at the data and when you look at the science, you will see that some of the models that predicted how many people will die were completely false and built on, you know, assumptions that were not in line with reality. And people just, you have to see it like this, you know, there's a massive threat. There's a new virus coming in. People go into kind of a shock state, a fight or flight state. Um, where you don't think anymore, you just act quickly. And then everybody follows that path and you don't ask any uncomfortable questions. And the moment you do, you're either a conspiracy theorist, you know, or you're from the extreme right or the extreme left, or you have gone crazy somehow. And if I think about it, just three months ago, everybody was talking about diversity you know, I don't, you know, everybody was thinking about having more women in companies and we need diversity to be more productive. It was like the hot topic. And now you don't want to talk about it. You know, there's zero diversity. And I think it's important when we have a complex problem that we approach it from many different angles. So, for example, I have watched closely the situation in Germany since I live in Germany and here we had one virologist who was very popular and very dominant in the media. And everybody's following the recommendations of this one virologist. And I'm thinking, 
okay, you know, there must be other virologists out there who have a different opinion, maybe based on their research. And then we should not only listen to virologists, we should listen to psychologists who understand decision making. We should look at people who know something about complex models. We should allow people such as theoretical physicists to join the discussion because they understand complex systems. The situation is complex, so we need to approach it from many different angles and not just from one point of view. And this is, again, so important in business again. And like you said, there's been a lot of talk about diversity, but it's not neurodiversity. And this is what you're talking about. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, if you're male or female. It's about how you think and that you give the other person the opportunity to speak and listen to them and take their point of view on board, which is what I love about your work. But this is the problem. So many people are in a state of fear. And as you say, it's in our DNA to be fearful of that which we do not understand. And that's what's caught everybody unawares here. COVID-19 is new and people don't understand it. And therefore, fear is everywhere. The word you just said, it's new. You know, there's also a bias called the novelty bias. And what happens there is that people react to anything that's uncertain, that's new. And I mean, that's smart. That's nature's way of helping us to pay attention to new potential threats. But the problem with it is that we underestimate anything that's old. So, for example, we are very, very careful about COVID-19, but people don't get vaccinated enough against the common flu. So in many countries, we had the problem now that people were not vaccinated against the regular and more normal flu that comes every year, you know, which you can get vaccinated against because it's old, we know it, we're used to it, we don't fear it. And now these things add up, right? And, and, and so we tend to be very scared of anything that's new and we tend to underestimate anything that's old. And that's what's important. You know, that's what's really dangerous here. I don't think we should ignore new risk. We have to be cautious. We have to be safe. We have to really look at this new virus. But the problem is if we only focus on the new stuff and forget about the old, we might underestimate already existing threats, which might be much worse. And you mentioned there about politicians, for example, and Politicians have known for years that a common enemy binds people. So a race of people or a tribe of people will gather together and fight a common enemy. And that has negative consequences like the left versus the right, et cetera, et cetera, but also has positive advantages like we're seeing with this huge movement towards altruism. Of course. And I mean, in the beginning, it was great how everybody wanted to stay at home to save lives. I mean, this is the mantra of the movement. And I feel that politicians have exploited people's altruism because we know in many countries already, at least I know it for Germany, I know it for Austria, that politicians planned to scare people, deliberately planned to put fear into people. And then, of course, the politicians become the big saviors. They become the ones who can save you. When we're fearful, we're less intelligent because, as you said, our brains become smaller, our amygdala becomes larger, and we often miss regulation being passed that's been fast-tracked. Regulation that may in the past have taken years to get through gets through extremely quickly under emergency conditions. And sometimes those legislations or those regulations are not in favor of the general public. Yes, this is very dangerous because... 
people accept anything at the moment because we do it all for to save lives. And since people are naturally altruistic and empathetic and want to help the vulnerable in the society, they do all that. But I think we still have to keep a critical mind. Maybe we should talk about the negative impact of our measures for a moment, because, of course, we're saving lives, and that's a great thing. But how many lives are we taking? We know that half a billion people in the world will go into hunger as a result of the recession. You know, there are estimates that show that 30 to 60 million people will enter extreme poverty, living on less than $1.90 a day. We know that more people will become depressed. We know that suicides are going up. We know that women and children get abused in their own homes. We know that during the past recessions, cancer deaths have gone up because when you cut healthcare budgets, you don't have the money for, you know, screenings and therapy. That all costs money. So if we spend all the money now, we might have a problem a few years from now when you have any other disease that you don't get the treatment you, you could have gotten. And we also know that during a recession, people don't feel well. So we really have many people who, who get psychological problems. And going forward, we will have so many more people dying from poverty than we could have ever had dying of COVID-19. One of the things I thought was really interesting in our last show and in your work, you talk a lot about the neurochemical oxytocin, which binds us together and creates a tribal feeling. And I was really concerned when I heard the term social distancing just being thrown around and being introduced into our lexicon because words create worlds. And it really does shape how we work and feel and interact with the world when we have vocabulary like that. And I was delighted to hear that the World Health Organization changed the terminology to physical distancing. Mm -hmm. But physical distancing as well can have detrimental effects. And I, I know that in your work, you share that touch is so essential for human well-being. Of course. And you know, we are wired to be social. Our brains are social. Human touch and human connection is essential to our well-being. It has been shown that people who have great relationships live up to eight years longer. So it has an impact on our longevity. And I think we can see it all over the place that, for example, the older people in nursing homes who don't get anybody who visits them anymore, they are isolated and they might die, die earlier because they're alone and, and lonely. And we also see it in children who are stuck at home without any other kids to play with. And, you know, the other day I, I went out with my kids. We're still allowed to go out here in Germany, so that's good. And another child approached us from three meter, meters of distance, and he started screaming at us. He said, stay away from us. You have a dangerous virus. You will kill us all. And, you know, I was there with my five kids, and we, we didn't cough or sneeze. We were just walking. And this little kid that was maybe like five years old started screaming at us from a distance to keep our distance. Distance. So you can see how it ends up in everybody's heads. I think the crisis hit, you know, like some some positive impact on the fact that people 
wanted to make a difference and they're staying at home in order to save lives and you see people helping each other and you say, you know, it has some positive impact on our social behavior, but it comes at a price. And I think many, many people at the moment are lonely and isolated and really suffering from that. That incident you had with the child reminded me of, you know, it's one of the things that I'm so passionate about this and wanted to have you on the show Recently, we had on the show Dr. Daniel Amen, who's a brain expert, and he shared a study. And the study was essentially about how fear can be passed on from generation to generation, and it went as follows. So researchers made mice fear the smell of cherry blossoms. So they released the smell into cages and then gave the mice an electric shock. And then they wanted to see, would the litter, would the babies of those mice have the same fear? So when the mice had babies, they released the smell into the cage again, and then they measured their brain waves to see where they fearful. And yes, indeed, they were fearful, even though they never got shocked. But what was fascinating was that litter of babies had babies again, as mice do, and the grandchildren were equally fearful of the cherry blossom scent. And we're doing this for our children because the impact and the decisions we make today will have a lasting influence not only for decades and generations to come but it will shape society going forward i'm so with you on this one and you know we have to understand that fear is contagious because fear is learned through social interactions you know of course it's also genetic as you described but there was a classical experiment where they showed that a little monkey got to watch a video where another monkey was afraid of a snake and then the little monkey who just watched the video started being afraid of a snake himself. And then they did the same thing with a video where the little monkey was afraid of a flower. So the, the monkey watched another monkey who was afraid of a flower. And this fear was not passed on to the little monkey. So there is a certain biological preparedness to fear. And I think a virus taps into that biological preparedness. We are wired to react with a massive shock reaction to a new virus. And then we pass it on from one person to the next by talking about it, by watching the media about it, by counting the death. It's in our minds constantly. And then we have something that's called the availability heuristic. So the information that is present constantly is more available for us. You know, we're constantly thinking and being reminded of COVID-19. And that's why we overestimate that risk and we forget about anything else. And I think what we're forgetting about at the moment is our children. You know, I have five kids, five small kids, and it's not very popular to talk about COVID-19 with a critical voice like mine, I, I do it anyhow. And why do I do it? Because I'm concerned about the future of future generations. I'm concerned about the fact that, you know, many children will grow up with parents who are depressed and unemployed and maybe drinking and maybe taking drugs because their life has become unbearable. I'm thinking about the fact that money that we spend today will not be available in the future to cure other diseases, which, you know, like cancer or, you know, there's a long list of other diseases that people can get. And if you spend it all on COVID-19, then not so much is left. So I'm very worried about what this 
will mean for our children going forward. And I think we can see it already now that many children are depressed in their homes. And one very evident thing is that children are not getting an education. We're closing schools. Of course, this will have a long-lasting impact. If you miss six months of school like my kids are doing, then, you know, how will you recover from that? And again, the social interaction, the physical interaction, playing with their friends, all such important, not only for a human being, but for the future of humanity in that a world that's becoming more and more digital and driven more by artificial intelligence. Those human skills are what is going to give us the advantage going forward. One of the reasons I do the show, as you know, is to share information that I don't feel gets enough of a voice. And recently on the show, we had on Jody Jackson and her book and her, the show was called You Are What You Read. And we focused on how too much negative news and indeed too much positive news is not good for us mentally. And media is naturally negative because bad news sells. And she was telling us that there's a mantra in the media that if it bleeds, it leads. And this is what you're talking about, linked to the availability heuristic, that everything we're hearing, COVID-19, even advertising for breakfast cereal, yes. <laughs> includes <laughs> that language, everything, you know, even businesses that we haven't heard from in a long time are sending us newsletters and the subject line is COVID-19. It's everywhere and it's driving the fear epidemic even further. Yeah. And you know, there's one thing I would like to say. It's not that I say the virus is not dangerous or we should just ignore it. Of course, it's dangerous. And of course, we should stay safe, do what we have to do to prevent vulnerable people from getting sick. I don't want anybody to die. That's very clear. So what I would like to show is that when people are in fear, they put themselves at risk. To give you one example that I took from an, a scientist called Gerd Gigerenzer from the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, who does a lot of research on risk and what happened with the swine flu, etc., on decision making. And he always says, you know, after 9-11, people were afraid of flying. And then what happened was that they took the car more often for long distances, right? If you don't want to get into an airplane, then you can start driving instead. And the year after 9-11, in the U.S. alone, they had 1,600 people more than usually who died on the road. So people focus on the fear of flying. And then they get killed on the road because they try to find a safer solution. And if you think about the risks of flying versus the road. We know that there's about 1.35 million people getting killed on the road every year. And how many people die in air crashes? What do you think? It's about like 300 people a year. Then, you know, it's like 270 people last year or something like this. So people don't have a clear idea of what risk looks like. We are very much driven by fear and by instinct. And I think we should also think about how can we get out of it. And I have one very simple advice on that. I think it's always important we get bombarded by these numbers at the moment. So we know, you know, so and so many people have died by COVID-19 and we, we are focused on these numbers. Whenever I see numbers like this, I always compare, compare them to other numbers. 
So I think it's important to not only look at the people who died by COVID-19, but to compare it to other risks. So, for example, the 18 million people who die of cardiovascular diseases, 10 million people die of cancer, 8 million people die of air pollution. So we have to be a bit more risk-savvy by comparing those numbers to other numbers. And then we can make up our minds whether that's a lot or whether that's a little. And I actually care about people's best interest, right? I want my children to have a future where not half of the world is living in poverty. I want to have democratic systems. I want people to be free. I want children to have an education. I want people to have jobs. I want people to have health, and we can only have health if we also have somewhat of an economy to support our health. I think that's a brilliant way to finish today's show. For organizations and executives interested in your leadership and indeed how to transform and disrupt themselves and instill innovation in their organizations, where can they find out about your work? Well, I have a website called fabulous-brain.com. That's where you can find me or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And I'm always happy to get additional questions in, in case there's any doubt or, you know, any curiosity about the things we talked about today. And of course, there's my book, The Leading Brain. Author of The Leading Brain, Neuroscience Hacks to Work Smarter, Better, Happier, Neuroscientist and Concerned Humanitarian, Friederica Fabricius. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you. 